Good afternoon, everybody. Yeah, I'm Ming, and today we are going to start the sermon series on Micah. So I'll be reading the first chapter of Micah from verses 1 to 16. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moshef during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Here, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burnt with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and will. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plot is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Geth, weep not at all. In Beth opera, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame. You who live in Shafi, those who live in Zainan will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Those who live in Maroth live in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lashes, harness fast horses to the chariot. You are where the scene of daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you will give parting gifts to Moshef Gath. The town of Eskip will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marsha. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as a vulture, for they will go from you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ming. And hi, everyone. I'm Nat, one of the ministers here at St. Jude's. And I'm really looking forward to digging into Micah chapters 1 and 2 with you this afternoon as we begin this five-week series on the book of Micah. As you can see from the screen, we've called this series Disobedience, Disaster, and deliverance. It's kind of an intense title, isn't it? It's a shame it's not something like disciplined, delightful, and deserving. That would be kind of more cheerful. 
but not really what the book of Micah is about. And to be honest, even though Micah is a short book, just seven chapters, it is actually a really intense book. It's a, an emotional roller coaster. So uh, Micah seems to jump from the depths of despair to the heights of hope, sometimes just in a couple of verses. It's not just an emotional roller coaster, it's a book that can seem really far away from where we are today. Uh, the kings that are named might not be super familiar today. We heard about Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The place names are also often unfamiliar. So Beth Ophrah, Beth Ezel, Shafir, Zanan, we heard in our Bible reading. If you know anything about the book of Micah other than those 20 words, uh, you might know a verse from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. This is a great verse. It's a verse that you find in memes and wallpaper and tea towels and mugs. It is a really great verse to know, but there's actually a lot more that we can learn from the book of Micah. So to help us with some of those challenges, this afternoon we're going to use an approach to reading the Bible that has three stages. We're going to mind the gap, smell the roses and join the dots. This is my husband's creativity at work, just to give credit where credit's due and he's here so I have to acknowledge. <laughs> um, but, but these are the three steps we're going to use as we work through the text this afternoon. Minding the gap helps us to be aware of the historical dif distance between Micah's hearers and us today. It helps us to read the Bible well as history. Smelling the Roses is about appreciating deeply what we read in this book, uh, reading this book well as literature. And joining the dots, make sure we apply what we read here in Micah to our own lives today, reading this book well as theology. So first, let's mind the gap between our day and Micah's day as we look at the who, when, where and what of this book. I don't know if any of you are Star Wars fans. I'm a bit of a Star Wars tragic and if you are a bit of a Star Wars fan, you'll know at the beginning of each movie, the, uh, there's the, the Star Wars opening crawl. The music comes on, uh, your spine starts tingling, uh, you're excited to join with the uh, rebel fighters against the Empire. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Uh, but the music comes on and the words scroll up the screen. And what that reminds you of is where you are in that epic story that is Star Wars. Who's who, what's happening and uh, the particular context of that movie. Micah 1 verse 1 is just like that. It orients us to where we are in Micah's moment in the great epic story of God's people Israel. It helps us to mind the gap. So verse 1 is the Micah opening crawl. I don't have any stirring music, unfortunately, uh, but let me read the verse for us. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So the who of the book of Micah is the man Micah, whose hometown was Moresheth. This was a town about... 40 kilometres southwest of Jerusalem. This map was a little bit ambitious, um, 
but uh, the top is the pink is uh, Israel, the bottom is Judah in orange, and there in the Mediterranean Sea is the small little rectangle pointing at Marasheth, which was Micah's hometown. The when and where of Micah is during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, as we've heard. They were kings of Judah. And it's a vision concerning Israel and Judah. Samaria and Jerusalem are the capital cities of those two nations, respectively. If Star Wars is epic, the story of the nation of Israel, God's people, is mega epic. And it's history. It's not fiction. This epic story of God's people began with creation and with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Other defining moments in this story were God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, the Exodus when God brought his people up out of slavery in Egypt under Moses' leadership. That was a real high point but it was followed by a low point, by the people wandering around in the desert for 40 years because of their failure to trust and obey God. Moses died on the edge of the land that God had promised to bring his people into. So it was Joshua who led them in instead. He encouraged them to be strong and very courageous and to obey the law that Moses had given them. Once they were in the land, their story continued with conquest They had judges who led them. Then they had kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, another high point in the nation's history. But when Solomon's son Rehoboam was king of Israel, the northern tribes rejected him as king. So the kingdom of Israel split. This is another slightly optimistic slide. But uh, on the left, that single line is uh, the kingdom of the combined kingdom of Israel, Uh, When the split happened, there became a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. That was in 930 BC. Micah lived a long time after that, about 200 years later. Micah probably prophesied between about 730 to 700 BC. And Micah and Isaiah are both mentioned down there on the bottom right of the screen in that orange ready kind of blob. This was the end of the 8th century BC and it was a really tough time politically. Assyria was the global superpower. They invaded Israel in 734 BC, then again in 722 BC. And that second invasion was the end of the nation of Israel. That's why the top line stops. Most of the people were taken captive. Assyria came back and had another go at the southern kingdom, Judah, in 701 BC. Judah barely survived at that time. And there's a reference to that later in the book of Micah. So the summary is that Micah served God in really fearful times. That's the who, the when and the where. The what that Micah brought into those fearful times was the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Micah in a vision that he saw. The vision is addressed to all of the peoples, to everyone who lived in the earth, but it's about God's people in particular, about Israel and Judah, and it's addressed to them as well. It's a message from the sovereign Lord, from the Lord in his holy temple. The power and perfection of the Lord underlie this vision. This 
powerful Lord, this perfect Lord, is bearing witness against his own people. He is testifying against them. That is really not good news. We'll see on our way through Micah that there are three main sections in the book, chapters 1 and 2, which we're looking at today, then chapters 3 to 5 and 6 to 7. Those three sections can be viewed as lawsuits being brought by God against his people. Three cycles of disaster in response to their disobedience. But thankfully, it's not all disobedience and disaster. Hope is found at the end of each of these three cycles in the book of Micah. Today we're going to see one whole cycle in chapters 1 and 2, disobedience, disobedience, disaster and deliverance. Then in the other weeks of the series, we'll look at half of each cycle each Sunday. So let's lean in now to Micah 1 and 2 to help us smell the roses. We'll slow down, we'll look at the details of the text and really feel its message. As we do that, we'll explore our, first, our, our three themes, the first of which is disobedience. When our son was in preschool, I read a book about parenting. It was called 123 Magic. I was a little sceptical about the title. It seemed to promise an awful lot, but it was recommended to me by a friend of mine who was a paediatrician. And I kind of figured if anyone should be able to recommend a good book on parenting, it would be a paediatrician. It was actually an excellent book. It aimed to help parents establish a discipline strategy. It's a strategy where the child knows ahead of time what process will happen if they disobey their parent and they know ahead of time what consequence they'll experience when they disobey their parents. Micah's vision makes it really clear in chapters 1 and 2 what Israel's disobedience has been and what consequences will follow. Verse 5, all this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? We see here that both kingdoms are in the firing line. The whole covenant people of God stands guilty. The two capital cities are singled out, Samaria and Jerusalem. They're the centre of corruption and maybe this points towards the leaders in particular being culpable but I think it's also the people in general. If you read the history of this period in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles you see pretty clearly what Micah is talking about. Repeatedly there's a refrain used to describe the kings of Israel. So and so did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The kings of Judah at this time uh, were a little more mixed. So uh, some of the kings of Judah, Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah did even better. But Ahaz was a bit of a different story, more like the kings of Israel. In more detail, what we really see in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is that both Israel and Judah sometimes worshipped God in the right way often worshipped God but in the wrong way, not in the way that God had told them to and sometimes didn't worship God but rather worshipped other gods. Their sin is idolatry. 
Micah calls out their idols, their temple gifts, their images in verse 7. He calls it an incurable plague in verse 9. Perhaps starting in the northern kingdom, it's spread to Judah and Jerusalem, to Micah's own people. At this point, I think Micah seems really foreign to us, doesn't it? Idolatry is not really our problem, right? But maybe we shouldn't be so hasty in that conclusion. Romans chapter 1 diagnoses all of humanity as having worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. We're not tempted to the same kind of idolatry that Israel and Judah were with statues and images to worship. But perhaps we are tempted to idolatry in other ways. Perhaps we seek security and hope in places other than in our God. There's a writer, Christian leader, Tim Keller, who's done some work and some thinking in this area. He identifies a number of idols which he says uh, tempt us away from following God with all of our heart. Four of the most basic idols he identifies are power, approval, comfort and control. He says those underlie some more concrete idols, things like relationships, work, success and money. All of them are good things in and of themselves, but not when they become ultimate, not when they draw us away from trusting God for our security and hope. I found it really challenging uh, reflecting on some of this, meditating on what some of the idols might be in my own life. Maybe uh, it might be helpful for you as well to reflect on that question of what things might be pulling you away from worshipping God with all of your heart. Idolatry isn't the only problem though for Israel and Judah. If we read on into chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Micah says this, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Verse 8, Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich road from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. What's described here isn't kind of careless disobedience to God. Micah says God's people are plotting and planning evil. It's deliberate. They defraud, they rob, they see something and they take it. Homes, fields, inheritances, robes. They leave their victims without livelihoods, without homes, unable to experience the blessing that God intended for his people in the land. They're greedy, they're corrupt, they oppress. It's really full-on description, isn't it? I wonder if sometimes you see some of those things in our world too. Maybe sometimes in our churches. Maybe sometimes even in ourselves. What we see here is that God requires us or calls us to worship that is both vertical, to obedience that is vertical as well as horizontal. That's the shape of the commandments that God gave his people in Exodus. Worship God 
as well as loving each other. Israel has failed in both. And that's not all either. Chapter 2, verse 6, Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, Does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. Micah's really having a go at them, isn't he? It's not just the leaders and the people of God who are disobedient. The prophets are too. Other prophets are telling Micah not to make his vision known. Don't talk about it, they say. The people themselves query Micah's message. They ask, does the Lord become impatient? They imply by that question that because they know the Lord is slow to anger, that he would never act. Does he do such things, they ask? They cast doubt on whether the Lord would ever come in judgment on his people. Micah calls them all out. The words of the Lord do good to those who are upright, he says. But these people would rather hear from a prosperity prophet preaching plenty of wine and beer. They love to hear the covenant promises but not its prescriptions. They like the covenant comforts but not its commandments. Maybe we're sometimes like that too. Maybe sometimes we like to hear about gospel salvation but not so much about gospel sacrifice. It's a pretty bleak picture. God's people are idolatrous, they're greedy, they're corrupt, they oppress the vulnerable, they're deliberately deaf to the words of the Lord. We don't live under the Old Testament law as Israel and Judah did, but God's call on us has that same shape of vertical and horizontal obedience. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment in the law, this is what he said in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. The vertical, love the Lord your God. The horizontal, love your neighbour as yourself. Hearing that, perhaps we do fail in some of the same ways that Israel and Judah did, even if the details look different. God's assessment of Israel at this point is bleak. His assessment of us without him is bleak too. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, he says in Ephesians 2, gratifying the cravings of your flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The consequence that Micah warns of for Israel is equally bleak. Chapter 1, verse 12, Micah declares, Disaster has come from the Lord. The Lord declares it too in chapter 2, verse 3. I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. You can really feel the disaster in some of Micah's opening words from verse 3 in chapter 1. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the height of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing 
down a slope. It's a picture of unmitigated destruction. The world seems to fall apart as the Lord comes. It melts. It splits. The picture becomes more direct in verse 6. I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Samaria will be destroyed. Her religion will be eradicated. Remember Assyria, that global superpower of Micah's time. Remember they invaded Israel in 734 again in 722. Assyria was God's instrument of judgment. That was the end of the Northern Kingdom in 722 BC and the beginning of the end of the city of Samaria itself. The Lord did indeed make Samaria a heap of rubble. Her idols were broken, her images were destroyed, her people were either captured or killed. The Lord brought disaster against his people from which they could not save themselves. The disaster wasn't just the destruction, although that was bad enough. The disaster was also the significance of what had happened. Micah is a one, two, three magic moment. It's the word from the Lord to his people about the consequences that their actions will bring. But the real one, two, three magic moment happened hundreds of years earlier in Deuteronomy 28 on the edge of the promised land. In that chapter, Moses set before his people blessings if they obeyed the Lord, curses if they disobeyed the Lord in the land. The message on the edge of the land was, if you obey, then you stay. Micah flags here that the moment of truth has come. The people haven't obeyed the Lord and so they won't stay in the land he promised. Just like Israel, we've failed to wholeheartedly obey the Lord And so we also face a disaster from which we cannot save ourselves. Not the disaster of losing a nation, not the disaster of going into captivity, but the disaster of facing God's wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 again. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Now that might seem really, really harsh. But the truth is that our failures to love God with all of our hearts, to love others as we love ourselves, those failures are way more serious than we realise. Micah's response to Israel's disaster was to weep. Chapter 1 verse 8, Because of this I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. Micah wept over the plague of sin. He wept over its disastrous consequences for Samaria. He also wept for Judah and Jerusalem. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. The next little bit of chapter 1 is a little bit tricky to translate and to understand. This is where Micah had that whole list of different towns. They're all towns in the same area as Micah's hometown and there's a lot of wordplay happening in this section in the original Hebrew. The play on words kind of emphasises how appropriate God's judgement is. 
It makes Micah's message striking and memorable for the people. In a Victorian context, Micah might have said, Port Ferry will be the pits, Halls Gap a hovel, Torquay will be toppled. It's a heartbroken lament and he calls others to lament with him. Shave your head in mourning, he says in verse 16, for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. The reason for the lament is clear in verse 12. Disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem and Judah weren't destroyed when the northern kingdom was destroyed. But under their king Ahaz, they were pummeled from every side by Syria, by Israel, by Edom, by Philistia. Assyria came back and attacked the southern kingdom in 701 BC. Judah survived that time. But disaster came from the Lord even to the gate of Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, we are not Israel and Judah. But sin is part of our world, just as it was back then. Sin is part of our church. Sin is part of all of our lives. Our sin means that if justice is to be done, we face God's wrath. Do we weep over that as Micah wept? Do we weep as Jesus wept when he saw Jerusalem's failure to recognise him? In the face of such disaster, is there any hope for Israel and Judah? And is there any hope for us? Chapters 1 and 2 of Micah follow the trajectory of each cycle in the book. First disobedience, then disaster as we've heard. But finally, thankfully, then comes deliverance. On the other side of judgment, Micah saw hope. Hope that can only come on the other side of judgment because God is a just God. I don't know if you remember back into 20 and 21, hope was something we were all struggling for at different points, wasn't it? I remember the first really long lockdown we had and it felt really hard but it also felt like the case numbers finally started going down and we had hope we could see freedom might come. In 2021, hope seemed much more uncertain and short-lived, even futile at times. We kept locking down, case numbers didn't really seem to go down as quickly as we hoped. Uh, In the end, they just didn't really go down at all. Nothing seemed to go as planned and it was hard to have hope. What kind of hope does God offer his people here? The hope Micah declares is very different to the hope of the world. It wasn't a vain hope, but a sure hope. It wasn't a temporary hope, but a permanent and final hope. In chapter 2, verse 12, we read about this hope. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. It was a sure hope. It was also a distant hope. It was a hope of regathering that was articulated even before the people had been dispersed. It was a substantial hope. I will bring them together like sheep in a sheepfold, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. 
as well as anticipating a gathering, it was also a hope of liberation in verse 13. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. And it's a personal hope brought by their Lord and King. The King will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. So when was this hope fulfilled? You might hear echoes of some of those words in the words of Jesus in John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. This hope that Micah brings was fulfilled in Jesus, the shepherd king, and it's still being fulfilled. One writer says this, the fulfilment of this prophecy commenced with the gathering together of Israel to its God and king by the preaching of the gospel and will be completed at some future time when the Lord shall redeem Israel, that spiritual Israel, not Israel the nation, which is now pining in dispersion out of the fetters of its unbelief and life of sin. Our hope lies in Jesus the Good Shepherd. I want to really briefly wrap up now by joining the dots. We actually have been joining some dots as we've worked our way through Micah 1 and 2, but just briefly, let's draw it together now. Micah doesn't sugarcoat our predicament. We all disobey God. It also doesn't pull any punches. Disobedience leads to disaster. We face God's judgment. But we can thank God for the good news that he also brings deliverance. Ephesians chapter 2 again. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Echoing the words of Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, God has gathered all those who trust in Jesus, the shepherd king, into his flock. There's a great throng of Christians all around the world who worship Jesus. Jesus has gone before us. He's broken away through death into life. Spiritually, we are raised and seated with Jesus now, waiting to experience our resurrection life in all its fullness when Jesus returns. So let's pray and thank God now for the deliverance he offers us in Christ. Lord God, we thank you so much for these chapters from Micah. We thank you, God, that you are really clear with us about the problem of our disobedience to you, our creator and our king. We thank you that you warn us ahead of time of the consequences we face because of that disobedience. And we thank you most of all for the deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you in his name. Amen.